0: Here I'm standing with some rain on my face, finding here such unusual grace. I'm waiting here, standing where the mercy falls. Welcome to Vineyard Justice Network Podcast. The Vineyard Justice Network exists to empower Vineyard pastors and leaders to pursue and enact the justice of God's kingdom. VJN focuses on the interconnectivity of freeing slaves, ending poverty, and tending creation. In this podcast, we will be hearing from James Chong, church planter of Vineyard Underground in Los Angeles. And Director of Evangelism, InterVarsity USA. Here, James shares in the first plenary session of our 2014 BJN Conference, Kingdom Justice, Vineyard Values. The title of his talk, The Big Story. Hello, hello, I'm here. Glad to fulfill my portion of the affirmative action quotient here. I'm just playing, just just teasing. Um, Let me um, introduce you when I go places. I always uh, need you to know where I'm coming from, and this is my family. Um, My wife's name is Jinhee, and her name in Korean means truth and joy. So if you ever meet her, she's a whole lot of joy. and Whenever I cross her, I get a whole lot of truth, right? That's <laughs> kind of how she is. She will ding ya, it, it's great. She can watch, uh, t- we also tend to fight ideologically a little bit about our politics. And so um, I'll watch a Michael Moore movie and go like, wow, you see that argument, that was amazing. And she'll already have lined up five logical fallacies from the movie and just come right back at me. And I go, wow. So she's, she's a bit, she's, she's sharp and tough. Um, my firstborn, his name is Isaiah, and he goes by Ice. And my secondborn is Nathan, and he goes by Nate Dog. So if they ever wanted a career in Korean hip hop, yeah. dad has hooked them up. And our latest addition to the family is Jamie. She's five months old. There's a longer story to this, but actually I blame the Vineyard National Conference uh, that happened here a year ago. There's a long story to that, but the Lord said it was, she was coming, and here she is. So uh, this is Jamie, and um, she is amazing, my first daughter, and I can be in the worst mood, and the wife knows exactly what to do. She grabs the baby, puts her in my arms, and I'm feeling so much better. I don't know what it is. She's amazing, and that's Jamie. Um, well, before we get started, then, let me pray for us, and we'll get going. Well, thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're already here. I pray you would bring to light the things that you want to bring to light. If I say anything that is from you, you would allow that to take seed in our heart that it might bear much fruit. And if I say anything that is not from you, you would keep it as far as the east is from the west so that only your word would remain. God, it's always been about you, is about you, will be about you. So, Spirit, we ask for your guidance and your wisdom, your grace and your power especially as we tackle these huge things, Jesus, that you would lead us and guide us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Five, year, five days ago, history was made. Uh, the Nobel Prize was awarded to its youngest recipient ever, 17 years old. Uh, her name is Malala Yous- Yousafzai. Did I get that right? Yousafzai? Uh, Do anyone who knows Malala in this room? Malala was born in 1997 in the northwest portion of Pakistan in the Swat district. She is of Pashtun descent. Uh, It is such a, 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 the area of such scenic beauty that when Queen Elizabeth visited there, she called it the Switzerland of the East. It is also, however, a, a, a region that is, Incredibly dark for other reasons, and a place where the Taliban has uh, increased its control over the area. And she grew up in this area. Her father uh, was a school owner, a poet, and an educational rights activist himself. And so he started teaching her, and uh, a lot of stuff that she knows now. And she went to school. And in, by the age of 11 years old, she was already advocating for educational rights for women in the area, just proclaiming loudly as an 11-year-old, how dare the Taliban take away my educational rights. Right, that's some bravery. Uh, she also then became an anonymous blogger for the BBC uh, as they were looking for what everyday life conditions would look like under the regime of the Taliban. And so one person was... Um, nominated, but the family pulled out because it was far too dangerous, and Malala uh, decided to do it four years younger than the other person who was about to do it and started blogging for the BBC. She continued uh, along and started gaining international fame as someone who fought for rights. And then two years ago, as a 15-year-old, while she was on a school bus, a Taliban member came on the bus, and I want to get this exactly right, because it is absolutely frightening What was said. Um, He gets on the bus and then asks, Which one of you is Malala? Speak up, otherwise I will shoot you all. When she was identified, then she was shot with a bullet that would go through her forehead and neck, stopping in her shoulder. She was left for dead. It hasn't stopped her. But what kind of world do we live in when a 15 year old who just wants to go to school and wants her sisters to be able to have educational rights get shot in the head, through the neck, and the stops in her shoulder. Just for that, just wanting to learn. It's a crazy world. She deserves this Nobel Peace Prize at age 17. She continues, uh, and if you look at the clip, this is her speaking at the UN, and you can find this on YouTube. She's a very powerful and articulate speaker. She will knock your socks off, and she talks about how the bullet was meant to cause fear and chaos and confusion and take her out, but all she found was courage and determination to go on." It's a great story. Now, lest we think that injustices like this happen only overseas, <laughs> obviously, um, this is a picture from Ferguson, Missouri, where two months ago, August 9, 2014, an unarmed teenager named Michael Brown was shot by the police. And Uh, In there are so many layers of what's going on, right? Uh, And we have absolutely different and polarizing viewpoints all around the country around what's happening in Ferguson. And one viewpoint, you could argue that Michael Brown himself was a bit of a delinquent and just hours before was robbing a shopping, a grocery uh, convenience store. Or you could take it the layer out and say that, and, and then you can wonder why all the uproar for one person, one Victim of the police, who seem like he might have deserved it, um, which is again a sad case where we live in times when one person who dies by bullet, you know, that's not necessarily news, right? We live in that kind of world. But okay, but you could take it a, a further, just take it a further back a little bit and talk about how actually the community in Ferguson, particularly the Black community, has been uh, on the imbalance of power, particularly when it comes to law enforcement, and has been harassed. Uh, actually in a very systemic and continual way and then you could sort of take that back to a larger cultural, historic, national narrative about uh, the African American experience and sort of the narrative surrounding that and the imbalance of power that's there um, but it's, it's there this happens in our country as well right? and I'm just wondering how many of you went to church or in your churches has, has anyone from the pulpit talked about Ferguson? That's great. I would imagine that's probably also skewed given the kind of company and why we're here and why we're gathered. But you'll find that you know, for some people in our culture, not talking about this means you're not a very welcoming place to come. Right? And that's the kind of divide that we live in and the injustices are there, even on our side of the country. Here's something a little bit, you would wish it's a little more humorous, but it isn't. It's called, anyone, if anyone's into video games, I didn't know what kind of uh, age demographic we were gonna be in, so this might absolutely miss in absolute ways. But uh, there is something going on right now in the video game community called Gamergate. Um, and we got one. One gamer, and it, this is actually very intense what's going on. It, it initially came out of a, of a particular situation where there was a female video game developer who was accused of, of using a, uh, basically um, a romantic interest relationship with, uh, with the press to get more fame or more uh, attention for her video games, which absolutely wasn't true. Um, but Become this thing where one side of the gaming community then is really trying to fight for quote unquote the ethics of video game developers and video game I'm sorry journalists and how they're supposed to be um, covering the industry. But what's been happening throughout this? It's been really a war against women in the industry. Um, Super vicious kinds of stuff happening socially online. There are three people. Um, One who's a reporter who who covers the depiction of women in video games rightfully so, showing how actually degrading it absolutely is and she's getting death threats and all kinds of other kinds of things. Another um, person who's also in the industry and now a third a game developer. All of them had to flee their homes because the online community um, has become so intense they posted their addresses, and they've started doing death threats and rape threats so much so that the women in the industry are being completely oppressed um, and persecuted by some folks in the gaming industry. All right, and right, I, we could just go on and on and on, right? This is a depressing way to start a conference. <laughs> but I mean, these are just things that are there, and we could just take that all the way around the world and just go after system, system, industry after industry, institution after institution about the ways that there is there are forces that tend to benefit one side and oppress another, um, and it's in that that we get to spirituality, (laughs) Uh, that when we talk about these things, it becomes increasingly important for us how to talk about our faith and spirituality in light of these kinds of issues. Um, My job with the University Christian Fellowship is I'm the National Director of Evangelism. So in some ways, I have to pay attention to what's going on with young people, um, particularly college students, graduate students, and faculty, and figure out how to talk about the gospel in ways that are relevant. Um, I'm also a vineyard church planter. We have a community uh, in, near Los Angeles in Torrance in particular called the Vineyard Underground, you know, trying to catch that cool LA hip vibe. Um, we meet in, house, in a house right now, and we're hoping actually not to leave houses if we can possibly manage to do that, but we are open to God's spirit on where we go. Um, and in all of these places, and we have a lot of young people in our community as well, And the question that I was asked to actually try to connect the dots in is how does then spirituality and justice go together? Is there something that can ground and frame our discussion for the rest of our conference? And it's with that that as you think about the things like that happened in Northwest Pakistan or in in Missouri or online virtually with Gamergate, uh, I think it ties in very deeply into spirituality of the day. And it ties particularly in what I'm calling the spiritual question of the day. Uh, I believe it shifts with each generation, and in part, uh, this is not meant to be a humble brag, but just to show where it comes from, (laughs) is that I did my dissertation in postmodern leadership development, and part of my research was on philosophical and generational shifts. And so I stumbled upon a work by Strauss and Howe called Generations that came out in 1991, New York Times bestseller, where they went through American history from 1584 and then predicted out to 2084 what the generations would be like. And they found, though they've been accused of selective data, uh, data bias, uh, selective sampling of data, they found that there was a four-generational cyclical cycle that happened in America starting from 1584 till now, except for a break during the Civil War where it was such a traumatic and catastrophic event for the country that it skipped a generation. And so with that, when the millennials were eight years old at their oldest, they predicted what the millennials would be like in their 20s, and they were right on. Now, that's not to say that they'll always be on, but it just got me really fascinated and interested. And as I was looking at their generational theory, I started thinking about what might the question of the day be for each generation. And about 40 when the boomers were younger in their 20s um, and they had the cultural attention of the day, I believe their spiritual question of the day was what is true, right? That if you wanted to have an audience, you really need to talk about the truth, the ground of the Christian faith. And so we needed to argue about its logical reasoning and evidences that the Bible that we had is the Bible that we do have now, and that Jesus actually walked on the planet like Cain on Kung Fu, that Jesus actually died, that Jesus actually rose again. Um, And if we can prove these things, at least to a point where we can allay our doubts about it, then we have what is truth, and we would base our entire truth around that, particularly around Jesus' resurrection. Uh, Boomers are born between 1941 to 61-ish. These aren't hard and fast dates, but boomers in the house? Whoa, we are a mostly boomer crew. Okay, about 60%. Does this make sense, this idea of what is true, like this is what faith should be about? Yeah? I'm getting some nods. Well, Xers, when we came to town, I'm going to blow through this pretty quickly, uh, born between about 61 to 81 Xers in the room, okay, that's the other part of the crew. Um, Xers saw what the parents did. They didn't want to have their parents' lives who worked uh, at the expense of their families. Um, Xers then decided, actually, the truth that you had seemed to oppress other people, and they they sort of shifted into this place where instead of having an absolute truth, there was a relative truth. What works for you is great for you. What works for me, great works for me. And so they asked a different kind of question. In fact, this generation... um, could be characterized by a strong level of distrust, right? They were latchkey kids, we had to learn how to survive. We came home to empty homes, we we're in the most aborted generation in America. There were lots of things where we didn't trust the normal institutions to look out for us. So we had to learn how to survive. But we really, really cared about being authentic, right? We are the best BS detectors on the planet. And so uh, anything that smells of institutionalism, marketing, propaganda, anything like that is definitely, oh, hey, I don't know if I can trust you anymore. So they ask a different question. You can line up all your C.S. Lewis, Lee Strobel, all your um, things and you put them in a line and you can make it absolutely perfectly clear why this makes logical sense. And extras won't care that much because their spiritual question is what is real? They for an audience, for them, is really just about um, being honest, dropping your masks, talking about the stuff that's really going on inside and how Jesus meets you there. If you can air out really the hardest, dirtiest stuff that's going on in you and be open about that, extras would be like, oh, that's a person I can trust. And then I can talk about Jesus, right? Um, you could hear then in the, 20 years ago when these guys were really in the cultural limelight Um, The cultural critique of the day was that you Christians are not real, you're hypocrites, you're televangelists, you're leaders, they don't know what they're doing. And for the boomers, the cultural critique of the day was it's not true, right? Look at science, look at evolution versus creationism, so look at your Bible, it's not even written the way you say it's written and historical text criticism, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So these are the general questions of the day and so this is why this is important to our conversation around justice is that I believe that the spiritual question of the day for millennials, so the ones who have the cultural attention right now, is what is good, right? And they are connected to this world with technology. They see all the stuff like, uh, like poverty in the world, the AIDS pandemic, environmental, the environment, and they're wondering, hey, can't we just work together to fix these problems? And if not, then let's pick a different team. Uh, Xers for Xers, community wasn't ended in itself. But for millennials, they grew up on these extracurriculars constantly throughout their lives. So when they get in the community, it's about, okay, now we're a team. What are we going to do? And they want to do something about it. And so they're always asking this question, what is good? Or another corollary of that question is what works? Millennials are between about 81 to about 2002. Millennials in the house? Okay, that's the last, like, 20%. Um, you guys have been accused also of being quite narcissistic, Instagram, Facebook, all those kinds of things. So, you know, in some ways, your patron saint is Bono, right? Because you can be rich and famous, but also do some good in the world, right? It's perfect. It's after, And have some great selfies to boot. Um, what is good? So really the cultural question of the day, and you can hear then the cultural critique of the day, that God is not great, the title of best-selling book. Um, that actually the narrative today is if people were less religious, we could all get along and finally tackle some of these problems, right? Because you're religious, you have an intolerance because of your sectarian views. And so if you were to lay that down, maybe we can get together and deal with the bigger crises that are, that are coming, uh, that are around us, um, Parna did this study a few years back that said the majority of Christians, the majority majority of people in America, which is 56%, just barely a majority, but 56% believe that radical Christianity is just as threatening to America as radical Islam, right? So this is the narrative, that actually religion gets in the way of progress, and you can hear that right now in the debates, particularly around sexuality, right, and and how that's played out in the human rights as well. Um, and so that question around what is good is very, very important, particularly then as we talk about the central tenets of our faith, when we talk about the gospel, right? How do we talk about these things given the issues that we started off with, with, uh, how then do we talk about faith in a way that makes sense to the generation? And I think then we can come to something more biblical, which then brings together as we connect the dots, the worlds of evangelism, discipleship, justice, compassion in ways that feel like they're working together rather than disparate puzzle pieces. Right. So with that, that's the question is, is our gospel really good news? Because um, if we talk about a gospel that's just about beep, an individual's decision to secure their place in the afterlife, then you can see then, if you're creating a faith that says, you don't actually have to worry about anything in the world today, really. No, not really. Let it all burn. It's all going to hell anyway. Just pray this prayer, and you've secured your place. It's an individualistic gospel. It probably well to highly individualistic people. However, right as the postmodern generations continue to flourish in America today, you can see how this is not answering the spiritual question of the day. In fact, it feels like an escape from the spiritual question of the day. And in that escape, Christians then are seen as people who are not contributing, not helping. Uh, Now, I'm not saying these things are untrue. I'm just saying these things are no longer the front door for this this generation. And so then you become people, uh, as Dallas Willard calls y'all, vampire Christians, right? Because we don't have to live the way Jesus lived. We don't have to do the stuff in the red letters. We just want Jesus' blood right? And we become vampire Christians. Blah, blah. Uh, It's in that, there is that question of if we're sharing this kind of gospel, it doesn't seem like it's something that would necessarily bless people outside of church. It's just keeping the church folks on that life raft. When earth sinks down like the Titanic, we are going to be free. And again, there is truth to this. I know I'm spinning that in a strong, straw man kind of way, But to say that if we present our faith just about our individual piety without concern for those outside the church walls, not only will we become irrelevant, I don't think we are living out the kingdom. And that's just dangerous. Uh, I like the way Willard puts it, that in today's day and age, the validity of a religion will be based on the amount of blessing it brings to its outsiders. And I think that's something we need to keep in mind. Okay. So shouldn't it feel like good news then? Shouldn't the kingdom be good news if it's supposed to be this... Hope bringing, God, if new creation kind of thing, shouldn't it feel like good news? Um, and so, I do want to talk about the gospel that Jesus taught. I'm going to go through this rather quickly because I think for many of us in the room, this will be somewhat review ish. But hold on, I'm sort of setting things up for the thing that I want to kind of land on. Okay? Um, this is Mark chapter 1, 14 through 15, and as good vineyards, we know this by heart. Uh, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the gospel, where we get the word gospel of God. And the word gospel happens here twice in this passage. It was completely great to me, for me to see that Jesus had a gospel, not just Paul, and that Paul might be informed by what Jesus is saying. And uh, the, the gospel here is a military word. Right, uh, primary, it wasn't primarily a religious word. It's a military word. When Rome conquered a territory, he would send in the original language the angelos, where we get word angels. It means messenger. He would send his angelos to proclaim the Pax Romana, which was the gospel of Rome. Right, the Gaelic, That's what they taught. And the gospel of Rome was that Jesus is Lord. I'm sorry, Caesar is Lord and Savior, and the Pax Romana has come upon you. That the peace and prosperity of Rome has come upon you. No longer do you have to be ruled by. Ba- and strong men just take over. Now we will build markets and roads, develop your infrastructure and create economy. So now that the peace, and give you security around that so that the peace and prosperity of Rome is given to you. So when Jesus then talks about the Ewangelion of Yahweh, it's almost treasonous. It's powerful stuff. Talks about the kingdom of God uh, coming near and repent and believe this. So the kingdom of God, uh, you know, uh, I'm sure this is, totally review, but for me, when I was growing up, that just, I had pictures of Ted, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, right, the clouds of white, um, and people, you know, were coming to the white pearly gates, and everyone was dressed in white, playing the white harps, you know, and they had their halos, and everyone was white, right, (laughs) everyone spoke English, Uh, the Queen's English, of course, it wasn't American English, I'm definitely not Southern English, right, (laughs) I'm just playing, so then, um, the kingdom of God, though, has come near. It wasn't a place, as you know, that we went to when we died. But this is a one of location, not of time. That the kingdom of God has come so close to you, you can touch it. Repent was not just emotional, ah, feeling bad, but a cha- literally, in the language, a change of mind, a change of priorities, and belief. Not just like two plus two equals four. That we sent people to the moon, though. Some people still believe we didn't send people to the moon. That's crazy. Um, but repent and believe, believe in this culture was much stronger about putting your trust in. Right? So the old metaphor from Evangelism Explosion was you tie a tightrope across the Niagara Falls and he calls down to the crowd, Do you believe that I could go across, across, across. Right? The whole crowd says, yes, we believe. Believe in our culture means we would uh, believe that the guy can make it across. And, but pistis, the belief in their culture, meant that you would get on that guy's back and let him carry you across. Right? It was about banking your life on it. It was a, much more of a relational, not a merely cognitive word. And it's in that that we, then we need to define what the kingdom of God is, and there's like the effective range of God's will. Um, here's where, where God wants to happen actually happens and includes things like righteousness, justice, reconciliation, redemption, forgiveness, healing, peace, generosity, service, love. Um, and it's happening now. It's starting now right, and will one day find its fullness in the end. And what is great then is then we have a theology right down at the very core of who we are. The kingdom of God is already in our midst and isn't just talking about supernatural things, but also talking about everything being made right. All the systems and institutions can be redeemed so that everything can be made right. There is actually hope for the world because Jesus came died, and rose again, not just to die for the penalty of our sins, but to die to break the power of sin and death in our lives and in our culture and in our world. There is hope because there is a power that is greater than he that is in the world. And that is good news, even for people who aren't in the church, that there is actually hope to the junk that we see on the news, that there is a new way. Um, and it's with that 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 we need a gospel that is not just individual, but more systemic, more communal. Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, right? Speak deeply, strong gospel verses about everything. All things under, her, under heaven and on earth have been reconciled back to God through Jesus' blood shed on the cross. All things, not just souls, but relationships, institutions, cultures. These things could be redeemed. Um... Even the Taliban. Are there ways to redeem? Not just to say, like, okay, here's the silver lining of the Taliban. No, how does the cross and the power of the cross and resurrection break in and change things so that the powers of sin and death no longer have the day? Uh, Decisions, instead of just a decision, but a transformation, right? That what's cool is that Jesus, you know, he didn't call people just to... um, Well, actually, let me go here. Jesus didn't just die for the penalty of sins. In fact, that language, though it's true, is actually hard to look for. I actually tried to comb through the New Testament trying to find it. It's alluded to. There's Isaiah passage. There's other things. But the the text predominantly talks about Jesus dying for sin or Jesus dying for sins. And again, that just gets at the crux of things. If Jesus just dies for the penalty of our sins, then we don't have to change at all. We have our barcode so that when we get to the, to, the, to the gates of heaven, like Disneyland, we go boop and we're in. But if Jesus died to break the power of sin and death in our lives, in our relationships, in the systems around us, then we now have hope to change, right? How cool is that? And that Jesus then invited people to follow him in a way that released people into the mission life, right? If you think about the way he did it, he said, come follow me and I will make you and we know what he says if we grew up in the church, but the way we often present it from our church, follow me and the peace that's eluded you, you will, or the joy that you've hoped for, you can have. In our worst churches, right, come follow Jesus and you'll have a mansion on the hill and a Benz in the garage because the Lord you it up, bling it in him, yeah. But Jesus says, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of people. Right out of the gates, in the invitation, there's an invitation to give your life to love God and love others deeply, right? And how can we capture these things in the way we talk about our gospel? And how does this connect with, oops, let me go back. Um, How do we talk about these things in ways that connect with the gospel? And then in a moment, I wanna talk about how and connects around these issues of justice and what we should be paying attention to. So um, I wanted to uh, at least show you what I was talking to. I was tempted just to run right through it, but then I didn't want to leave you hanging totally. So here's a three-minute video find on YouTube if you want to that's uh, called The Big Story. It's a way that we're sharing about faith and inner as well as other denominations I have been taking the main way they want to talk about Jesus, which is really neat. Um, And what I want you to hear is for relational, for individual, like personal, relationship with God, relationship and systemic stuff, as in a way, the gospel. What you have here is a three minute clip, uh, usually a 10 to 15 minute conversation. But in a varsity that organizes other or the other organization I work for says, "Can you get this under three minutes?" And said, "Okay, let me try." So that's me. If I knew how many people would look at this, I would definitely have scripted it because there's some stuff here that isn't great, um, like the word "crap," which I wouldn't know would alienate the entire Southern Church, but it did. Uh, or my use my use of the word planet instead of world. I was just trying to use a different word than world because we use world all the time and now I'm accused of being a tree hugger and environmentalist. All the stuff that I didn't necessarily need to get in the way, but I just did it five times with my arms around the camera to get under three minutes. And, but this should give you the shape of how to talk about the gospel in a way that might connect with people today. Tell me what the world's like. When you turn on the news, what do you see? Well, between all the violence and war and terrorism and the AIDS pandemic and global warming, we've got to say our world's pretty messed up. What's interesting is how we feel about that. Uh, None of us think that that's a great thing. All of us long and ache for a better world. Well, isn't that interesting? Because hunger seems to point to the fact that food exists, and thirst points to the fact that water or drink exists. So our longing and aching for a better world seems to point to the fact that either a better world did exist or will one day exist? Well, in the Christian worldview, we believe it did. And that um, back in the day, um, God designed it so that the planet took care of us and we took care of it and we took care of each other and God took care of us and we blessed him back and that the whole thing was designed for good. So how did we get here? Well we decided that we were gonna run the show and when we started chasing our own needs above caring for other people or the planet, we started damaging the planet, we started damaging our relationship with each other, and ultimately we damaged our relationship with God so that the whole thing was damaged by evil. Well, it's great that God actually loves the planet and us too much to leave us that way so even in our brokenness In the Christian worldview, 2,000 years ago, God came as Jesus, and in that, he started to teach us a better way to live, and began to tell us about this thing called the reign of God, where all the good things that's supposed to happen actually do. And so, he taught us, and in his death, all this crap died with him, so that three days later, when he came back to life, there's new life possible throughout everything, throughout the planet, in us, and with each other. And so, everything is being restored for better. Well then, what's our response? Well, in this world, that's still messed up. Jesus is starting a revolution, and he's asking us to be healed ourselves in Jesus' name, to be healed in each other, and to go out and heal the planet, and that our mission is to be sent together to heal. Now, how come I can't just jump from here to here? This sounds great. Well, the world's problems are infinite, and we're going to get overwhelmed trying to take care of this on our own. We actually need Jesus' resources so that we can become the kind of good that we want to see on the planet, and that's crucial. So where are you? Are you here where you think the world is peachy? Or here, overwhelmed by the world's problems? Or are you here, got some sense of God working in your life, but not involved in his mission? Or are you here, you're trying to actually make this world a better place, relationships and you and everything, but have a hard time finding how God fits into the picture? Where are you? And that's what we call the big story. And I think for our purposes, what is great, why we like it so much, particularly in the University Tribe, in that when we try to then figure out the connections between spirituality and justice and evangelism and how all this goes together, at least in our gospel, we see why we have to care about the world and the people in it. And uh, this gives us a really great theological frame then to work out of as we try to talk about these kinds of things. And so um, it's with that that I really want to focus. So here are the verses again, 19 through 20. And this is the thing that I I feel like I'm supposed to talk about even more particularly, is that for God was pleased, this is Paul speaking in this great gospel text, that for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And I just want to land on that word reconciliation. Just because it's this huge word, Paul uses it in other places like 2 Corinthians 5 to talk about our reconciliation to God, but also in Ephesians 2 talks about it in ways where we're being reconciled to each other. But something that I just felt like needed to talk about here in the vineyard community is that sometimes we talk about reconciliation in one of two ways. Or maybe it's not just a vineyard thing, maybe culturally we talk about it in one of two ways. And one way we talk about it is we talk about it in terms of forgiveness, right? Where really what Jesus came to do was to forgive us of our sin, was to forgive us of our sins. And so in response, as we relate to other people in the world, particularly around some of these issues, we should just forgive. And we leave it sort of here on this table where forgiveness is the end of the journey. For instance... Um, there was a time uh, a few years back where, I don't know if you remember, at UCLA, a blonde woman named Alexandra Wallace decided to post a video on YouTube fun of Asian people. Does anyone remember this happening? It was super, super intense on the campus. And at the time, I was the national director of Asian American ministry, so particularly sensitive to what was going on. And what happened here is that there were all these calls from both Christians and non-Christians about what to do about it, right? And the the people who weren't Christian were basically just throwing Alexandra under the bus, death threats, um, name calling, et cetera, et cetera. And then there were the Christians. And it was funny, particularly uh, some Christian leaders, and to say they were mostly of majority culture, were calling on the Asian American Christian Fellowship there at UCLA, to publicly forgive Alexandra Wallace. Now, from the surface, that seems like a great idea, right? I mean, here are some white leader, Christian leaders asking the Asian Fellowship to forgive her in public, to demonstrate the grace of Jesus Christ in a pretty loaded and polemic culture. At the same time, you could see how that put the Asian Americans in a deep bond. One, the white Christians weren't the ones that were offended, so it was a little bit presumptuous for them to ask, and we'll, we'll leave their Christian affiliation nameless. Second, right, the fact that if we do that, if this group, this, it wasn't university, but another group, if they were to do that right away, they may alienate the secular Asian American students on campus who are absolutely angry and would feel like their systemic concerns are actually not super valid. And so here we Christians came out and said, look, we Asians forgave her already. What's wrong with the rest of you Asians, right? And that could put Asian Christians in a pretty tough spot. And you could see then, if you just play that out to all kinds of world systems, if we just call for forgiveness again and again and again without pushing that to the next step, right, then we actually don't have reconciliation at all. Right, because all we're doing is forgiving the offender. But let's say you're in a system where you're constantly being offended. Is someone gonna talk about the system itself? Or am I, as the one who is constantly victimized, gonna have to keep forgiving again and again and again when no one's addressing the evil of the system? Is that making some sort of sense here? Right? And that's the kind of the issue of the other side, is then there are others who then seek justice without forgiveness. Right? And that creates its own uh, dialogical thing, or was it a Hegelian dialectic? I'm sorry, I'm getting very nerdy on you. So basically, right, well, the power is going to shift one way or another, and the oppressed may become the oppressor very quickly as you seek justice. You might right a wrong in the moment, but in the way that you write that wrong, you could still create other kinds of systemic oppressions. Um, it, in a way, this is a way of seeking justice the way that the secular Asian Americans want to do. Just get rid of the offender. But then what does that do for the community? And has that brought the community together? Has that done anything to bring healing to the campus at all? What happened with Alexandra, actually, she left UCLA. Just cold left it, right? It was becoming too hard a place for her. What if there were some people in seeking justice were still reaching out to her offering some forgiveness, ways of bringing her back to the community? What if in that there was some redemption that she was able to go through? <laughs> you know, in my wildest dream, she gets to know Jesus, right? She understands kind of what made her do that. She asks for forgiveness for the whole campus. And how powerful would that have been, a community together, right? That's where justice as an end in itself, fails as well. And that reconciliation needs both forgiveness and justice. Because reconciliation means equals have to come to the table. And when you don't actually then deal with the justice side of things and press the forgiveness side of things, you don't have reconciliation. But if you seek justice without actually pursuing also the grace and forgiveness of God, you also aren't being reconciled. And somehow... In God's great kingdom, these things hold deeply together. That's why actually Jesus, that's why reconciliation is such a powerful word because in our culture today, we have actually no place for reconciliation. Blue state yells at red state, right? Blue, red politician yells at blue politician. CNN slams Fox and Fox slams MSNBC. And you just get in these places where people yell across the aisle. We have no great In the secular academy, as I look, we don't have a lot of ways to talk about reconciliation. We have lots of talk for diversity, tolerance, even justice. But when it comes to actual true reconciliation, that makes justice alone actually pale in comparison, right? Reconciliation demands more. It demands a healing of relationship and system. That's why we can't leave it at just forgiveness or justice. We need to take it up, and really seek the ministry of reconciliation, right? And that's the, where we as Christians can uniquely contribute to the mess, in a, way, in a good way, not a bad way, right? Where we believe we are people who are forgiven. We understand we should somehow have the resources to accept forgiveness, and yet in the kingdom also have the power to topple injustice, and to do this in humble and winsome and cross ways instead of triumphalistic ways, Right? how could that then hold together that we seek reconciliation? I really think when it comes to t- the two unique contributions the church could bring to our culture today, I think one is experiencing the Holy Spirit and his power, and two, it's reconciliation. Because if you can reconcile in our cultural day and age, you have something supernatural in your bones. That's why I, I'm working very deeply with the multi-ethnic department. We've We've done many things in our community to try to figure out how to talk about reconciliation in a way, particularly in a day when we are being kicked off campuses. I don't know if you've heard, but InterVarsity is now de-recognized from every California state university, all 23 campuses, around issues um, that seemingly are about how do we relate to our culture. Right? They basically say that if we demand our leaders to be Christian and sign a doctrinal statement, then we're being religiously discriminatory. So how do we have a conversation in that? So I think the way we can approach this is both with forgiveness and justice. If we seek justice, we can we can like call up all the alumni right of Cal State universities and say, "See what these guys are doing," and play a huge power game. Call CNN, call well, call Fox. Just call Fox, right? (laughs) Get them all barking down on everybody, right? We could seek justice without seeking relationship, or we could go the other way. And just seek, hey, and be the passive doormat in this community without seeking justice. And how in, can we in reconciliation seek both? Does that make sense? Um, we are constantly in, in our work seeking reconciliation because I believe that's what God is trying to do. Um, oh, there's my graphic for that. Okay, there it is. Um, so uh, for example, and I know I'm not touching some of you all, many of you are way uh, more experienced and experts in, in the areas of justice. Um, varsity, as we work with colleges, here's a few things we do to try to bring these worlds together. Um, one is our Price of Life Invitational. We are on our, our eighth campaign is going to start next week. Actually, it starts this Saturday. Oh, my goodness, it's happening. It's the single largest campaign we've ever done on a, one campus. Um, The year before, we were in New York City. We covered 15 campuses. Um, And what we do in this event is create awareness around human trafficking and give people chances to participate in its, basically, its abolition. Um, Sorry. In its, that's not the word, to get rid of it (laughs) in some way. Um, And so this is what we do. But we also then talk about why the spiritual causes of these things are also needed and why we need to, I mean, why we need to also talk about those things. Um, and so next week, we're going to be in Ann Arbor, Michigan at the, uh, Ann Arbor at the University of Michigan. Go Wolverines, if you are a fan. Um, and we are going to talk about these things. And what's cool, the first event, we have a Republican state senator and a, and a Democratic state senator sitting on the same panel working together to talk about trafficking issues in America today. And then we have other folks who will be talking about why there's a spiritual component to this. about uh, abolishing the, or at least highly deterring this, that we can't do it just through laws and justice, that we actually need a spiritual solution as well so that we can deal with the demand as well as the supply. Does that make sense? So we're really going for this. It's very cool. So these are the kinds of events where we try to bring together. Last year in New York City, we saw 230 people give their lives to Jesus as well as many more seeking seek justice and how these things go together is what we're trying to pursue. Um, But my favorite story to tell comes from um, the University of California in San Diego. Um, This happened three years ago and uh, it's dear to me because I used to be staff on this campus and that's actually how I met Jamie and Michelle uh, as I was forced to leave Boston because my wife became a grad student at the University of uh, California, San Diego um, and we stumbled upon the Coast Vineyard community and um, it was in this time where on staff here, and sort of, and then, so this, it's near and dear to my heart. But in 2010, I don't know if you heard about this, but a white fraternity decided that they were gonna throw uh, something called the Compton Cookout. Has anyone heard about what happened here? This made the news, New York Times. Okay, the Compton Cookout. It's actually quite funny. You know, I'm a Greek person myself, Phi Kappa Theta, uh, may or may not be, but it just seems like there's this regular season that happens in the fall where the racist theme parties begin. And I'm not sure why people go like, this is a great idea to dress up with a sombrero and a mustache or whatever they decide to do for their particular theme. But look for the news in the next two, three months. There'll probably be six or seven racist theme parties that show up on campus and there will be more fodder for prayer requests as we deal with this. Not sure why that's happening, but so this they did this thing, this fraternity did this thing called the Compton Cookout to celebrate Black History Month. Great, and they told people to come dressed like nappy hoes, or they did all the stereotypes around that to come to that, Um, and so it created an uproar on campus. Um, In particular, there was a time when um, a the affirmative action was struck down in the UC system so that the black population was dwindling already. So there was already a bit of like, does the UC system want us here? Then this happens, like, boom. So it's like this, this match on the Tinder it explodes. And as they're rioting, someone then decides to play another joke and puts a noose around the main statue in front of the library, right? You're like, what is going, so now, the black community in particular, but other students of color were feeling very unsafe. Students were coming from all around Southern California to help with the protests. It was covered in national media outlets. It was a really intense time. Now, the administration had no idea what to do with this, actually. There's a YouTube clip where you'll see the chancellor of UCSD try, is, is standing next to one of these protesters, and she's got her head down while the protesting's happening. You can see this YouTube clip. And then what happens is she then, not sure what she gets into, it's just all of a sudden, and I'm not sure how the editing works, but you'll just see her kind of go up, and then in the middle of their chant, right? um, And I can't remember exactly what they were saying, but it wasn't particularly peaceful, right? And then So then she tries to hug a protester in the front line. What are you doing? And so the student just pushes her off, and then she's back to staring at the ground. The administration had no idea what to do. They tried to calm the campus down by calling all students together for this assembly. They asked the black students uh, union president, the BSU's president, to, to lead off the event. The problem is they didn't actually work with her in terms of what to talk about or anything or address any of the issues she felt like the campus needed to address. They just wanted her up at the front. So what does she do? She goes up to the front and basically that and tells everyone to walk out of the assembly. So everyone walks out, gets worse. No one knows what to do with this. University Christian Fellowship, they're the largest student group at UCSD. And so they go like, and they're mostly white and Asian. They have a few African-Americans, a few Latino students, but really predominantly Asian and white. Um, And they just feel like maybe they should start praying for the campus and maybe they should get involved. And they started hearing the Lord together, really kind of doing listening prayer because they were freaked out. Like, obviously, right? How, How do you step into racially charged places as whites and Asians in ways that wouldn't be offensive, right? There's always that, if I do this wrong, I'll be a racist kind of feel. They're trying to figure that out. They feel led to show up at a rally. The whole fellowship really comes by with armbands that say pray on them. But because they're a huge group, They really show up in force. They double the event quickly, right, just with their presence and started engaging the campus. Um, And after a while, they started getting in and helping the administration figure out how to to connect with them and held a rally with the BSU and uh, other communities. We started being welcomed in the the cross-cultural center, what they call the cross, Not so ironically. And in our relationship with them and reaching out to them, they started building a whole lot of trust and they created an event. And this is what some of the black students said from the front of the stage of the secular sponsored event about InterVarsity. They said stuff like, UCSD was known as a racist campus. Look around you. Do you see racism here this evening? No. InterVarsity has taught me how to love, and it's a beautiful thing. Another said, I walked away from church because I thought God doesn't care about justice. But today, I look at all of you here and I know that we are sisters, we are family. God really does care about this. And then another black student said that there were only two places where he felt safe on campus. That's the BSU and intervarsity. What happened after that, right, is that now every single fraternity and sorority pledge has to go through intervarsity cross-cultural training. Right, right. And then one of our staff couldn't get enough funds, we raised our personal support, to stay on campus. So then he applied for a job at UCSD, and out of five applica- 500 applicants, he's chosen. And do you know why the chancellor's office chose him? Because he had, this is what they told him, that he had inner in his resume, and you know how to help us reach the campus. So all of this, we're seen as a winsome witness there. University of UCSD has won the Humanitarian Group of the Year Award at least twice, if not more. And get this, last year, they led 260 people to Jesus. That's in a nine-month span. That's over, that's like 1.5. Like every two days, three people are coming to know Jesus. And so here they are, bringing their concerns of justice, concerns for the campus, yet a deep heart for Jesus, and seeing these worlds come together, and it feels like good news. In what ways could we enter in? Not keeping these things separate, but bringing these worlds together so that in reconciliation, we seek both forgiveness and justice. Let's pray. Lord, we um, confess, I confess as someone who has a lot of privilege in this culture that it's so easy for me to ignore justice and just to land my spirituality deeply in the forgiveness camp. I know I have that privilege. I know I have the privilege to ignore just injustice issues because I tend to benefit. And Lord, there are a lot of us where it just it, if it's easy for us To ignore the justice side. And for others of us, it's just—it's too hard to ignore the justice side. But it's hard to embrace the forgiveness side. Knowing things that are to us or things done to our communities. So Lord, what I ask, God, is that you let the kingdom break down those barriers. Let the kingdom flow. Break down those barriers in the name of Jesus. Help us to know how to steward our power or powerlessness well. That Jesus, you would help us to know how to embrace your ministry of reconciliation so that the good news of who you're, what you are and the good news of what you're doing may go forth and bless. I'm thankful for this room. There are folks here are in like often thinkless kinds of things to seek the compassion of those that others ignore. So I do pray in this place, would you give us an extra filling of your spirit, an extra level of encouragement, a word that helps us get through the next season? Jesus, we are in deep need. And thank you for partners from all around the country to be able to start doing this. And Jesus, help us. Help us in this. Give us your supernatural power and grace. Help us, lead us by your voice so we know how to enter in to hold these things together well. You're a good God. You're making all things new. This in Jesus' name, amen.